But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness, for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other created things. No, a legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Amen. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for the Spirit's help to understand and rightly divide the word of truth. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Last week we began looking at the third commandment out of the Ten Commandments in a general way. We uh, began to see what the meaning of the commandments is and the reason for this commandment. Why does it appear in the scriptures? Why has God pressed it upon us for all times and peoples and cultures to obey it? And what we learned is that when we use the names of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, we must do so with reverence, with love. To use his name in a vain way is to do so in a way that treats his name as not that important, as though it is inconsequential. Just another name above, uh, among other names, that is, and you can kind of do with it what you want. And so we, we began to see that uh, the Bible teaches us that when we use his name, we should fear his name, acknowledge who he is in our witness. We should call upon him for salvation, invoke his name. We even saw in our morning sermon this morning when it comes to the Psalms that we're to invoke his name in remembrance, in praise, in thanksgiving. So there are many ways that the Bible itself gives us to call upon the name of the Lord and truly to use his name as the privileged people of God. But we did that in a, a primarily a general way last week. And today we are looking at a very specific use of the holy name of God, and that is in the use of vows. And since there is some confusion about this topic, and there always has been, but there's especially confusion in our day and age because we don't really have categories of reverence anymore. There's really nothing that is very sacred anymore. Anything can be joked about. Anything can be used for our own uh, wants and needs, desires, and for our own gain. So there's a lot of confusion about this topic. So to clarify here at the outset, I'm going to be using the words vow and oath and swearing to mean the same thing. So if I'm talking about swearing, I'm not talking about profanity tonight. We're talking about invoking God's name in a particular 
way. And that particular way is to confirm the truth. That is the use of a vow. It is to call upon the name of God to use his name in order to confirm the truth. And that, you know, that blossoms into very, a lot of different directions. That simple definition uh, takes us down many different avenues. And in this message, I want to hold up for us the principle of carefulness as a guide and a guard for us when it comes to making vows and coming under oath. What is the law of God for? As we've seen, we already confessed tonight and the question and answers from the catechism. The law of God tells us how to love God and to love our neighbor. So we bring this commandment under that goal. What does it mean to take a vow in such a way that it is done for the glory and out of love for God and it is for the good of our neighbor? Those are the two directions that we keep in mind. And uh, so as we come with that rubric in mind, those goals in mind, a vow must accomplish that. And I think that the, the category of carefulness is a good principle for us to help us discern that. We're going to explore this tonight first by asking if there is such a thing as a legitimate oath. Because there's some question about that as we open the scriptures. And then secondly, we're going to try to recognize those legitimate oaths in scripture. And third, recognize illegitimate oaths. So we can't say everything tonight, but I hope that by the end of the night we'll be able to hang our hat on some useful categories and examples from Scripture itself. So first, the question is, are there legitimate oaths? Or is this now a thing of the past? We ask this question because of two passages in the New Testament. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier from Matthew 5, 33-37. And then there's a corresponding passage in the letter of James. James chapter 5, verse 12, where James is summarizing and and very clearly relying on the teaching of Jesus from the the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's Matthew 5, 33 through 37 again. This is Jesus. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There are several things to point out about this little passage. The first is that Jesus is referencing the Old Testament. He's referencing the Old Testament when he says, you have heard it said, the people of old. And he's summarizing Old Testament teaching there, which allowed for oaths to be taken. So that is kind of the cornerstone that we need to see. There's at least in the Old Testament sufficient grounds for oaths to be taken. Another observation is that Jesus mentions the way that the Pharisees and others in his own day had begun to abuse oath-taking. So he's doing at least two things here. He is referencing that the Old Testament saints were permitted to take oaths, and he's also addressing the abuse of taking oaths in his own day. 
as the Pharisees and others superstitiously tried to avoid ever using God's name when they took a vow, they would talk around it. And so instead of saying God's name, they would say something that was connected to God or something that they saw to be a symbol of authority. So, you know, you swear by the throne of God. You swear by the temple. You swear by your head. That's a symbol of authority. And that was their way of trying to get around the use of God's name because it felt less dangerous to them. But you see that kind of exhaustive and exhausting approach is actually superstition. So it ends up going in the opposite direction of what they were desiring and seeking to do. And Jesus condemns their abuse of oath-taking. But maybe the most important observation to point out is this. The context here is the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, which is Matthew 5-7, through Jesus uses all kinds of different teaching methods. It's just a an amazing passage of scripture. And he does various different rhetorical things to make his point. He's a master teacher. One method that he employs is hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate on purpose to make a point. Exaggerate on purpose to make a point. For instance, Jesus has just said only a handful of verses earlier from this passage that if you sin with your eye, you should pluck it out, and if you sin with your hand, you should cut it off. That is the rhetorical device of hyperbole. He is exaggerating. They knew, and we ought to know. Unfortunately, some monks did not get the memo on that in church history. So that's hyperbole. Another method that Jesus employs in this sermon is returning to the ideal. Returning to the ideal. That's, that's my language. That's not uh, the name of a device here. But Jesus is returning to the ideal of a particular topic that he's speaking about. We see this when Jesus pushes his hearers to go back to an ideal situation. And he does this just a couple of verses above. In verses 31 through 32 on the topic of divorce. So Jesus is speaking directly about divorce, and he is talking about a topic and speaking about particular instances where divorce might be allowable, but he's actually pointing us back and his hearers back to the ideal. The point of his very stark language in his teaching on divorce there is that he says the more ideal situation is lifelong marriage. So he's going kind of beyond the topic. If the topic happens to be divorce, he says something very intense about the topic of divorce uh, in order to push us and his hearers to the ideal, which is that we wouldn't have divorce at all. If the fall had never happened, we wouldn't have divorce. Now, are there instances where a divorce is permissible? Jesus says yes. Yes. But he speaks strongly to push us back to the ideal. So here it is, I think, with vows. I think both of these devices that Jesus uses are useful for thinking about what he's doing here with vows. Some take it to be hyperbole. 
I, I actually tend to think that it's better to think of it in terms of returning to the ideal. The ideal is that every person would simply tell the truth all the time. Let your yes be yes and your no be no and leave it at that. That's the ideal. And if there was not a fall into sin that this world had plunged itself into, then that's how things would continue to go. And that is indeed a crucial point. Brothers and sisters, let us be honest people. Let's learn to be honest and speak the truth and speak it candidly because when we speak the truth, we are on the side of God who knows our hearts, the catechism tells us. He's the only one who knows our hearts. And then when it is necessary or particularly useful, then may our vows be done with careful consideration of love for God and love for our neighbors. So as we just saw in, in this a topic of divorce, are there instances when a divorce is permissible? Yes, but he wants us to think about the ideal. So it is here. Are there instances where it is good to take a vow? Yes, but it is, it is better. And the ideal is that we would live transparently honest lives before the Lord. So that it would rarely, if ever, be necessary, especially in our private lives, to have to take a vow. And yet vows and the taking of oaths and swearing, that recognizes the fact that we live in a fallen world. And that sometimes the truth needs to be upheld with something more solemn and formal than simply a yes or a no. So, are there legitimate oaths? Yes. Yes, there are. And I think when we take Jesus' words here and think about the rhetorical devices that he's using, I think we get our answer. But as we look at some legitimate oaths in the Bible, we'll see that Jesus himself seems to engage in them. So we have to use Jesus' own practices and the examples of what Jesus says and does and harmonize those things with his own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So secondly this evening, let's look at examples of legitimate oaths. It is important to realize that this same Jesus uses an ancient formula for swearing in the Gospels. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. That is an ancient formula that is more formal than just letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Or, uh, maybe even more stunning, the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is on trial among the Sanhedrin. And the high priest puts Jesus under an oath by invoking the name of God and forcing Jesus to answer a question. And Jesus actually willingly answers under oath. When so much of what happens in that trial is Jesus choosing to remain silent for particular reasons, it's important to recognize that while under the force of an oath, Jesus actually answers a question. And it is that same Jesus who has spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have to weigh Scripture with Scripture. Question and answer 101 says that believers in both the Old and New Testament practiced such oaths that we see Jesus engaging in. Here are some categories. There are religious oaths. Oaths that take on a religious flavor because they are upholding truth among God's people and upholding truth in the churches. 
Paul does this a number of times in his letters. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He's speaking about a particularly painful topic in Romans 9. And he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. See how that's more formal than letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Not because he's going against the teachings of Jesus, but because he's recognizing this to be a legitimate moment for solemnly swearing because of the topic at hand. Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23. He says there, I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Paul had kind of a testy relationship with the Christians in Corinth because they were uh, pretty sinful, like all churches. And uh, they were kind of recalcitrant. They were hard-hearted in many ways. And Paul sometimes had to come with tough love. And he's telling them, you know, some of my choices may seem suspect to you, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. So here the point is that in the church of Jesus Christ there in Corinth, that a dispute would be settled. Uh, When we read from Hebrews chapter 6 earlier, the author of Hebrews just assumes that that's one of the uses of taking a vow. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says that people take oaths to settle disputes. And we see Paul doing that in a church, in a religious context. Or in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, here Paul puts the church under oath. As he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So that is, uh, you know, all these letters seem to have been read when the church assembled. This is certainly the case for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here. He's saying it to the, the assembled church. You were under oath to do what I'm telling you to do. This needs to be read before all the brothers. So vows are permissible in a church setting to invoke God's name in confirming the truth, settling disputes, encouraging people. That that act of encouragement is also implied in Hebrews chapter 6. So there are religious oaths. There are also oaths that are legitimate even in a secular setting. Maybe this is more shocking. I don't know which one tends to shock us more. But there are oaths that are legitimate even in a secular, non-church-like setting. For instance, we read in Genesis chapter 21 about Abraham, the patriarch, the man of God, the man of faith, who encounters a tribal king, the king of Gerar, named Abimelech and his commander. And it was Abimelech who initiated the oath-taking. And he said to Abraham the patriarch, Swear by God that he would treat him and his family and his posterity with kindness. And Abraham freely swore in order to testify to the truth. It is legitimate, as we see in Abraham, or as we see in Jesus when he is on trial, it is a legitimate thing to come under oath even in a non-religious circumstance, such as in a court of law. So if you have found yourself in a situation like that, or you find yourself in that situation in the future, you are uh, free to do so. And in fact, I think that the posture of God's Word, and as we summarize God's Word in the Catechism, is that if you have the opportunity 
to speak the truth candidly, then you ought to take that. You ought to take the opportunity. So your conscience ought to be clear in these kinds of scenarios. There are many others, but I think these are, this is a kind of a healthy dose of several instances in both the Old and the New Testament to help us see the kinds of things that make legitimate oaths. And, and brothers and sisters, when we recognize that there are such things, we enter into them, then we ought to take them very seriously. Because we are invoking God's name when we take an oath. And we are doing that by default, even if in the language of the vow, God's name is not specifically taken up. But brothers and sisters, we are Christians, and we will gladly invoke God's name either explicitly or implicitly in the cause of truth. So we ought to do so, entering into legitimate vows with carefulness, looking out for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbors. And when we recognize that we have broken legitimate vows, public or private, religious or secular, we ought to repent and turn to the Lord and seek his compassion and his forgiveness. Even this sin, this kind of taking of the name of the Lord in vain, is forgivable through the blood of Christ. And so we ought to claim that forgiveness when we recognize that we have broken legitimate vows. Lastly this evening, there are also things that we would deem illegitimate oaths. And I want to give us uh, just a few categories to deal with here. Again, there are more, but maybe this will get us started in the right direction as we think about whether or not we are being careful when a vow is being uh, placed, the opportunity to make a vow is being placed before us. An illegitimate oath would include those that are made without sufficient discernment. Without sufficient discernment. We ought to ask ourselves, in this situation, has enough information been given to me that my conscience is clear? You can't know everything about every situation. But has enough to settle your own conscience been given to you? We read earlier from Joshua chapter 9 this uh, kind of strange and interesting incident with the Gibeonites. As Joshua and the Israelites were to come into the land of Canaan, they were supposed to get rid of all the inhabitants. This was holy war. It was judgment upon those who lived in Canaan. It was God's judgment against them. And uh, they did not go as far as they were supposed to. Joshua and the Israelites did not. And this plagues them through the rest of the Old Testament. And uh, the Gibeonites had heard about the beginning of this conquest. And uh, cunningly, you know, we've got to give them some credit. Uh, they, they planned ahead, knowing what they had heard about uh, Jericho and uh, another area called Ai, which had been destroyed in this conquest. The Gibeonites tell a bunch of lies to Joshua and to the leaders of Israel, and they are taken. Joshua and the leaders of Israel are taken. They're had. And it leads to all kinds of trouble for them. Uh, they are under the impression, Joshua and the leaders of Israel, under the impression that these are actually not Canaanites, but they've come from a faraway land. But that was a false testimony. And Joshua and the elders of Israel, it says that they did not seek the counsel of the Lord in making this vow. And once they had made it, once they had invoked God's name, they felt tied to it. The takeaway here for us 
brothers and sisters, is that carefulness in oath-taking means that we do our best to understand a situation and to discern with God's help if we know enough to invoke God's name and make promises. Another example of an illegitimate oath would be one that goes against God's word. If the terms of the vow are contrary to God's word, you must not take that oath. And that would be the case no matter what the punishment is, brothers and sisters, which I think would be, is becoming more and more relevant in our day and age. The Israelite leader Jephthah, which we read about in the book of Judges, vowed that when he came back from battle, he would sacrifice the first thing that he saw come to greet him out of the doors of his house. And lo and behold, with such a stupid vow, the first thing that came out of the doors of his house was his daughter. And he sacrificed his daughter. So not only was this a stupid vow to take, but it was also obviously against God's word. Because the people of God are not to sacrifice any humans, let alone their own children. So his vow was completely illegitimate from top to bottom. It went against God's word. So brothers and sisters, carefulness in taking vows weighs the terms of that oath with God's word. And if it goes against God's word, we reject it wholeheartedly. Finally tonight, one final category. An illegitimate oath would be one that is irrational and hasty. Because we are talking about the name of God. And we don't invoke his name either implicitly or explicitly in a hasty manner. It's not one name among others. It is the name above all names. He is God. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his name must be used with reverence and awe. So, for instance, when King Saul of Israel vowed to kill anyone in the Israelite army who ate food before they had finished the battle that they were in, as they were pursuing the enemy, that if anybody ate food before that cutoff, then he would destroy them, he'd kill them. He did this, he took this vow in the excitement, the fervor of battle, he wanted to get the job done. But it was hasty and it was irrational. And also it was his son, kind of a mirror of what we just saw from Jephthah the judge. It was his son who ate food out of ignorance, having not heard about this vow. Now Jonathan, his son, was spared, thankfully. But this was at least, at least, an irrational and hasty vow. And it caused all kinds of problems on this day that should have been a day of victory for the Israelites. Carefulness in taking vows means thinking soberly about whether or not it is truly needed, whether it is done for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors, or if it is being done hastily. Brothers and sisters, this is about the great name and the reputation of God. It's about your reputation also, but it is primarily about the reputation of God's name, His glory, to uphold the holiness of His name Let us live honest lives so that day to day, most of the time, for most of our lives, our yes is yes, our no is no, and people just trust it because they recognize us to be trustworthy people. And when an oath is necessary for the love of God and for the help and the love of your neighbor, then do so with care and in reliance on Christ. Amen.